Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word, and we thank You, Father God, for the promises in this chapter. And Lord, I pray that as Your people, that we would be looking up as Your redemption draweth near. Lord, we look forward to the day and the moment, Lord, when You will call us home. But until then, Lord, I pray that we would be faithful to the calling You've placed upon each one of our lives, to be salt and light to a lost and a dying world. So, Father, I just pray for each one of us, our hearts would be prepared to hear from You. And Lord, I pray, Lord, that in the weakness of men, that You would be made strong, that You would be our teacher this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Last week we looked at Luke chapter 20, and I entitled the message, Examining the Lamb. And the reason we titled the message that is that this is now the last week of Jesus' time before He is crucified. On Sunday when Jesus came in to the land and into Jerusalem, He came with a hero's welcome. We know that as He came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, an animal of peace, that they came out with, with palm branches and they cried out, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. They called Him Son of David, which means Messiah. And as He came in, they gave Him this hero's welcome. Then we saw that on Monday, upon his arrival in Jerusalem, when many of the Jews thought that he would go into the government officials and he would overthrow the government and begin to rule and reign on earth, they were looking for a Messiah to give them stuff here and now. Instead, Jesus didn't go to the government, he went to the church. And he went into the temple and he turned the tables over and he rebuked them for turning his father's house into a den of thieves. And you know what, I believe that if Jesus came back today, well, first of all, He's coming back, but when He does, He's, not gonna, he's just going to take us home. But you know what, if He were to come today, I believe He wouldn't go to the White House, I believe He'd go into some churches, because we've gotten so far away from the truth. We have turned our Father's house into a den of thieves. The church as a whole has got its eyes off of God and gotten its eyes on the world. So we see in examining the Lamb that this was the day that they expected. When you get to, to Tuesday of that week, that's the day that they would expect the, inspect the Passover lambs. They would bring the lambs in that were going to be taken and, and going to be made a sacrifice on Passover, and they would expect them to make sure that they were perfect. They had to be firstborn, they had to be spotless, they had to be without blemish. And we know from last week's message in Luke chapter 20, that's exactly what they began to do with Jesus. All the different religious leaders came out and they began to question our Savior. They questioned His authority. They questioned His allegiance, whether they should pay taxes or not. They questioned His theology about the resurrection. And as they questioned Him, they were examining the Lamb of God and didn't even understand it. So just as they were examining the lambs, they are examining the perfect Lamb of God. Then we saw at the end of the chapter last week that the Lord made it very clear who He was. He said, how can David call his Savior, how can he call Him Lord and call Him Son? How can He be Lord and the Son of David? The only way that's possible is the Messiah must both be God and man. He must both be perfect, holy God and, and sinless, perfect man. And that's exactly who Jesus is. You know, everybody else, we're going to see this this morning, many come claiming to be the Messiah. But to be the Messiah, you must be God and you must be man. And you must be without sin and you must be able to redeem sinful man back to holy God. And only Jesus Christ could do that. And then lastly in chapter 20, the way that it ended is they've been putting a magnifying glass on our Savior and all they saw was perfection. As they came and questioned Jesus, they walked away, you know, muttering to themselves. Because every time they thought they had our Savior trapped and they walked away without any words to say to Him. So then He puts up a magnifying glass in front of men. And what did we see? We saw a bunch of hypocrites. The scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees who truly were Sadducee because they didn't believe in the resurrection... But you know what? He put a magnifying glass up in front of them, and what did we see? We saw the frailties of men. And so he rebuked them, 
And he said they were going to be under heavy condemnation. And you know what? That's why we are not called to follow men, but to follow the Lord. Amen? Men will fail you. You put a magnifying glass up in front of any man, and you will be bummed. You're going to see the sinfulness of every man. And that's why, you know what? We don't follow even the pastor. Amen? Ask my wife. She's got a big magnifying glass. She's seen me, okay? The reality is that we don't follow men. We follow the Lord. The Lord will never disappoint us. The Lord is perfect. He's gracious. He's an awesome God. And so we're going to pick up this morning, and we're going to see that now that, the, that he's been questioned by his enemies, he's going to receive some questions by his followers. And we're going to see the difference in the way that the Lord relates to these questions. When they came questioning him, the, his enemies trying to trip him up, he rebuked them. But when his disciples come questioning him, he's not going to rebuke them, but he's going to educate them. And that's what I entitled the message this morning. So we go from examining the lamb to educating the sheep. He's going to educate the sheep about giving. He's going to educate the sheep about future events. The destruction of the temple, false messiahs, wars, famine, pestilence, and signs from heaven. He's going to um, educate them about coming persecution, the destruction of Jerusalem, the second coming of Christ, Israel's future, and to watch for His coming. Man, there's a lot in this chapter. Amen? But you know what? I love the Bible because it is so very rich. So two interesting notes again, that Jesus' words about the future were in direct contrast to what they would expect about the Messiah. As He gives them the word, it's exactly the opposite of what the Jews would have anticipated. Quite often people come to God looking for God to do something in the here and now so that we can rule and reign here. You know what? The Lord will never feed our flesh. Our flesh needs to die, not to be fed. Amen? And too many people come to God wanting their flesh to be fed. And second of all, the religious leaders, again, as they questioned Him, He rebuked them. But now we're going to see sincere questions come and how our Lord responds. Let's pick up in verse 1, looking at our God educating His sheep about giving. Look at verse 1. And He looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. Now Jesus had just condemned the religious hypocrites, and part of what He said in the last part of the last chapter was that they had devoured widows' houses. They were fleecing the poor people. And you know what? He looked up and he saw the rich people giving. Now you have to understand, when they gave, they gave in the outer court, or what is called the court of women, because it was the only court that the women could come into. They could not go into the inner court. And they had these chests out that had these funnels on them. There were 13 of them lined up, and each one had a mention of what the giving was for. Now the rich people, or the hypocrites, many of them loved to come in, and they made a show out of their giving. And they loved to get, they would exchange their larger coins for coins of smaller value so that when they poured these coins into these funnels, it would make the most amount of noise possible. You know, people would walk in and go, wow, that guy really gave a lot. Right, and all, the, all the money just shaking in the phone. Wow, and the guy would just be like, yeah, that's me, I'm giving, that's right. And so you know what, though? I want to be honest with you. If we give with that heart, it's nothing more than noise to God. And that's exactly what these guys did. They came in and they gave, but they gave so that they would be noticed by men. You know, the Bible says that God loves a cheerful giver, but we are to give with anonymity. The Bible says, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. You give in a way that God alone is glorified. You know what? If you give so that people will see you, the Bible says you've received your reward. And he saw these rich men and they were giving so that people would look at them and say, man, you're awesome. Look how wonderful you are. You know what? May you never leave church thinking how wonderful a man is, but saying how great God is. Amen? Leave this place talking about Him, not about men. And they made this production and sought to impress men. But look at verse 2. And he said, truly, I, uh, verse 2, and he saw also a certain poor widow putting in 
two mites. Now the word poor widow in the Greek signifies extreme poverty. This woman was desperately poor. She was more fit to be getting money from the, from the uh, tithing and from the giving rather than to be a donor of it. She should have been receiving. But instead she goes up and she gives two mites. Now a mite, the value of it, the smallest coin that existed in Rome, and it was worth about one-eighth of one cent. And so this woman has two mites. Now everybody else goes up, right, you know, making as much noise as they can and, you know, dra- you know, blowing trumpets before them and come on in and let me watch how great I am. And this woman goes up and quietly just takes all that she has and she places it in and made very little, if any noise at all, and she walked away. But notice who Jesus watches and sees. It's not the ones making all the noise in their giving, but it's those who give from their hearts. And look at our Lord and our Savior's response to this poor widow who gives, again, one-eighth of a cent, proving it's not how much we give that matters. Look at verse 3. And He said to them, Truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than, than all. For these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God. But she out of her poverty put all the livelihood that she had. She gave all that she had. When we give to the Lord, it's not the amount, but it's the cost that matters. It's not the portion, but the proportion. You know what? It's a lot easier for Bill Gates to give a million dollars away than for a lot of us to give somebody ten bucks. You know, if, you're, if you've got billions and billions of dollars, when he gives a million dollars, people make accolades about it. But the reality is, it's not what we give, but how much that le- that's left. And God sees our heart. Man looks on the outward appearance and God looks on the heart. And so it's not about how much we give. It's not about the portion, but it's about the proportion. And I'll tell you, the ultimate sign of giving is like this woman. She gave all that she had. I love that illustration. I heard a man once tell me that when the offering plate went by, he just wanted to put himself in the offering plate. He said, I just wanted to get in myself. I want to give myself to God. And that's exactly what this woman is doing. She didn't know where her meal was going to come from. But you know what? She had enough faith to just trust God. And she gave all that she had. Others came and gave out of their abundance. She gave out of her lack. And who does the Lord notice? Who does He see? Not the one who makes the noise and lets the whole world see, but the one who comes and gives out of sincerity of heart. So not only does He teach them about giving, but He's going to teach them about the destruction of the temple. Look at verse 5. Then as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beauty, stones, and donations. Now, this is interesting, because you have to remember that the Lord had just called all of the religious leaders of the day hypocrites. He said, you guys are a bunch of hypocrites. You're going to be under heavy condemnation. The Lord had gone in and turned the tables over and said, you've turned my father's house into a den of thieves. And the temple was a pretty awesome building. And even his own apostles said, well, you know, Lord, let, let, let me show you around the temple. I mean, I know that you're saying these guys are hypocrites, but this place is pretty sweet. And I mean, look at this place, Lord, and there must be something good going on around here. I mean, Lord, come and look. It's such a wonderful and a beautiful place. Letting Jesus know just how special the temple really was. Let me tell you something. Our Savior is not impressed with monuments. He doesn't care. We talked about this in in our Exodus study. That right after the Ten Commandments, when they realized they were sinners, He said, go and build an altar because sin convicts us and makes us see our need for a Savior. Without conviction, there can be no conversion. And so once we see we're sinners, we see our need for a Savior. And he said, build an altar. But it's significant that he said, don't put any silver in it, no gold in it, and don't even hewn out the rock. Why? Because the focus should not be on the altar, but on the sacrifice. 
It's not supposed to be about the building. It's not supposed to be how beautiful it is. And praise God for that because we're meeting in a gym. Amen? But you know what? It's not about the building. And praise God for the place we meet because you know what? It should be the focus only on Jesus Christ, Him crucified and risen from the dead. If the altar is so beautiful, people are looking at the altar and they miss the sacrifice. And the temple was a beautiful place, but guess what? They got in their eyes off the sacrifice. The Messiah was standing right before Him and they missed Him. Let me tell you about this temple. Let me tell you about it. It's incredible. At the time of Jesus' ministry, the temple was one of the most impressive uh, structures in the entire world. It was made of massive blocks of stone that were 40 feet by 20 feet. Not inches, feet. 40 feet by 20 feet. They were hewn far away and they were brought in and put in and they were, they were perfectly put together. They, they weighed several tons each. Each one was inlaid with gold and they fit perfectly together. The buildings were made of gleaming white marble. The whole eastern wall of this large main structure was covered with gold plates that reflected the morning sun, and it was visible for miles. When the sun would hit it, it would blind everybody. And everybody thought, wow, that marble and the stone and the, the gold, what an incredible building. What a massive, what an awesome thing. And people were trusting in the temple. It had brass gates and gold furnishings. It was renowned for its beauty even among the Romans. Israel viewed the temple as being something that was invisible, invincible, and Jesus was not impressed one bit. He didn't think much of it at all. Because you know what? All that stuff is passing away. And you know where the temple is today? It's us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that's the thing that will last. I'll never forget being in Russia, standing on a street corner. And, and we, I, we had a band there, and I was standing there. It was back in 92, one of my first trips. And I was sharing the gospel, and many people came to know the Lord. But one man came up and kept telling me how beautiful this church building was. And he went over to this Russian Orthodox church, and we stood inside the building. And without a doubt, it was one of the most beautiful buildings I had ever seen. But you know what? It was deader than a doornail. It was a Sunday morning. There was nobody there. It had a bunch of paintings. It was filled with rituals, but it was filled with dead men's bones, too, in that there was nothing happening. God was not there. And you know what? That was true of the temple. The church is not the building. It's the people, and we need to remember that. And this church is the ultimate, or the temple is the ultimate symbol of Jewish religious establishment, viewed as a symbol of God's glory, but it would be utterly destroyed. Look at verse 6. These things, this is Jesus speaking, which you see, the days will come in which not one of these stones will be left upon another, that they shall not be thrown down. It's interesting because if you said that to the, the people thought he was crazy, later they're going to bring those words back to Jesus and they're going to blast him for it. When he stands for his ultimate trial, they're going to say, you said the temple would be broken down. You said, in three days destroy this temple, on the third day I'll raise it up. And he was speaking of himself. But you know what's interesting? In A.D. 70, not 40 years after Jesus said this, Jerusalem was overrun. And it was overrun by a man by the name of Titus. And guess what happened? They destroyed the temple completely. Uh, Josephus says that what happened was that the temple was set on fire and the gold began to melt. And as the gold began to melt, that the Roman soldiers began to push the, the stones away so they could get to the gold between the stones. And what ended up happening was not one stone was left upon another. And so this massive temple that people trusted in was gone. But you know what? If we're trusting in, in a building, if we're trusting in a religion, if we're trusting in a denomination, if we're trusting in anything other than Jesus Christ, it's going to crumble. It's going to fall. It's going to fade. Now, beginning in verse 7, we're going to see the beginning of what is called the Olivet Discourse because Jesus will be speaking on the Mount of Olives and He's going to answer the questions of His disciples. Look at verse 7. So they asked Him, saying, Teacher, 
But when will these things be? And what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? Now remember the heart and the attitude of the unbelieving religious hypocrites when they came to Jesus. They came accusing Him. These disciples come truly seeking to know and hear from God. They want to be educated. Now let me ask you a question. When you come to the Lord, how are you questioning Him? How do you come to Him? Do you truly come saying, Lord, teach me, show me? Or do we come with accusation, Lord, how come you're doing this? Why don't you do things better? Lord, you need to fix this. We need to come in humility, crying out to God that He would teach us His truth. And these two questions again. When will the temple be destroyed and what sign will indicate? Now the Lord is going to teach in the next 12 verses that the end was not yet, but He's going to give them signs of the end times that are coming. Now again, these words were specifically to the Jews, but there are things that apply to each one of us in the room. Because we're going to see some things that we're getting a picture of now. They're going to get greater and greater as we get closer to our Savior's return. Look at verse 8. And he said, Take heed you not be deceived, that you not be deceived. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And the time has drawn near. Therefore, do not go after them. So first of all, the, one of the first things we will see in the end times is many people coming, claiming to be the Messiah. Many will come, false teachers proclaiming themselves to be God. It's interesting that it says here, many will come saying, I am He. And that word He is in italics in your Bible, or it should be, because He says, many will come saying, I am. And who is the great I am? God is, amen, and Jesus Christ. And you know what? No one else is the great I am. You know what? I'm the, I, we could be the great I was, or I want to be, or I could be, or I'm kind of hoping I will, but you're not the I am, Amen. There's only one I am. And he said, many will come saying, I am the I am. Many false teachers will come. And you know what? We see this happening big time. You know, it's interesting to me. There were never any false messiahs until Jesus came. You know, it's interesting that the Messiah was taught about for hundreds of years before Jesus came, but there was not one false messiah until he came. You know why? You, can't, you cannot uh, try to duplicate something that doesn't exist. You only counterfeit things that have already come. And so after Jesus came, many came proclaiming to be the Messiah. In 132 AD, a man by the name of Simon bar Kokhba came on the scene claiming to be the Christ. He said, follow me and I will lead you out of your Roman oppression. After promising that no one who followed him would die, he fought his one and only battle against the Romans and 580,000 Jews died. You know what? When you follow a false Messiah, the result will always be disaster. Every single time. Let me tell you about some other false Messiahs. About 15 to 20 years ago, a band by the name of Benjamin Cream ran a full-page ad in the New York Times, the L.A. Times, the San Francisco Chronicle, claiming that the Messiah had come and he was living in Liverpool, England. Amazing. Maharaji, he was 16 years old, and he claimed himself to be the, the Christ, the Messiah, and the Guru. He held rallies. One was in the Astrodome, and over 80,000 people packed the stands to see this false Messiah. It's interesting how he, he fell from grace, though, because he went out and he bought a Learjet, and he started eating meat, and he married a 38-year-old convert, and his mom was so mad at him, he told, she told him he couldn't be the Messiah anymore. <laughs> she kicked him off the throne and put his brother in his place, right? And sadly, people are following these false messiahs. And the Lord says in the end times, there'll be more and more of these false messiahs coming and saying, I am He. Jim Jones 
People followed him and drank cyanide Kool-Aid, led hundreds to mass suicide. David Koresh claimed to be Jesus and he died in a fire. Shirley MacLaine standing out on a cliff somewhere saying, I'm God. Everyone is God. False messiahs are all around us. Here, Benny Hinn says that Jesus is going to appear on stage with him and you need to make sure you come to his crusades because you don't know which one it's going to happen at. But but the Lord has, has revealed to him that he's going to show up on this stage with him one of these days. If he shows up, Benny, I wouldn't want to be you. Now, here's the thing. The New Age Church says that we're all God. And there's all these false messiahs. We live in Santa Cruz. You know, this New Age capital. And everybody says we're God. You are not God. Two things are for sure. There is a God and you're not Him. Amen? And you know, we need to follow after Him and serve Him and worship Him. But many will come claiming to be the Messiah. How do we keep from being deceived by the counterfeit? By knowing the real thing in an intimate way. Amen? We've t- said this before. How do, they, how do they teach tellers not to fall for counterfeit bills? They get them to know the real one so well. They touch it. They feel it. They know everything about it. Then what it smells like. When someone hands them a counterfeit, they go, oh, that's not real. And you know what? We don't need to go out and study every other religion. There's, and again, if you have a heart for apologetics, that's great. But you know what? I want to know this so well that when someone brings me a lie, I know it's a lie because I know the truth. Amen? We need to spend our time in the Word. You know, read the book, don't wait for the movie, right? We need to spend time in this thing so that we know the truth, so that when the lies come, we're not deceived by the enemy. But that's a sign of the end, that there will be many coming and claiming to be the Messiah. The second thing that will happen is verse 9, But when you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified, for these things must come to pass first, but the end will not come immediately. Not only will there be false messiahs, but there will be wars and rumors of wars. There will be human pestilence, as we'll see in the next few verses. And you know what? It's interesting that, that right now, according to the, this book entitled The War Atlas, that since World War II, there has not been a single day of peace on this planet. There are over 35 million, 35 million active soldiers right now. There are 570 million reserves. And I don't know, you know, I heard this stat that almost half of all the scientists in the world are working on weaponry. So you know what? Wars and rumors of wars. We see what's going on in Iraq right now. We see what's going on with the tension in the Middle East. You look all over the world, and the Lord says in the end that this will increase. It will get worse and worse and worse. There's 40 tons of TNT in this world for every person on the earth, not counting conventional weapons, guns, rifles, etc. We are armed to the teeth. And you know what? The Lord said in the end... It's going to be more and more and more. Now, it's always been, but it's going to get worse and worse as the day draws nearer that our Savior will come. So we'll we'll see an increase in false messiahs, and we'll see an increase in war. You know, one scientist was once asked, what weapons do you think will be used in World War III? His response was, I don't know, but I can tell you what will be used in World War IV. He said, what? He said, rocks, because that's all that's going to be left. And the reality is, I believe that World War III won't happen until the tribulation. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But if, if there's a world war, and, we, and you know what? It really is a picture of what we see in Revelation. Some of the things that happen could be very clearly from you know, a nuclear holocaust. But praise the Lord, before that happens, we're going home. Amen? And I can't wait to get there. Verse 10. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. So along with wars and along with false messiahs, there will also be famine and pestilence. There will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilence and there will be fearful sights and great signs in the heavens. 
Famines. Forty million people died of starvation in a four-year period just in Ethiopia and the northern Sahara region. Our population is exploding. In 1857, there was one billion people on the planet, and now there's over seven billion. There's more and more people and less and less food. You know what? Famine continues. Pestilence. This is talking about something unusual and something that cannot be cured. Well, we have an example of that, and it's called AIDS. There's no cure for it. It's a pestilence. And there are many other that will continue to come because of the sinfulness of man. Because of our sinful behavior outside of God's will. There will continue to be earthquakes. We, we live in California. We don't have to talk about that. But as the, as the time of the Lord returning comes near, there will be more and more and more. And you know what? You hear about earthquakes seemingly every single week. And there will also says there, there will be famines, there will be pestilence, and there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. Along with those things, there also is going to be increased persecution of those who follow the Savior. If you were here a couple months ago and you heard the Gospel for Asia presentation, you heard how those guys' lives are on the line every single time they go out their house and start talking to people about Christ. We live in the United States and we don't understand what persecution is. But you know what? Let's take a look at verse 12. But before all these things, they will lay hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my namesake, but will turn up for you as an occasion for testimony. The word deliver you up is a technical word for handing a prisoner over for punishment. It'll be it was fulfilled in the martyrdom of the first century church. Again, he's speaking specifically to the Jews, but applies to us today. Of Jesus' apostles, all of them were martyred. The... the thought is that John the, Baptist, or John the Apostle was boiled in oil and didn't die. So they put him out on the island of Patmos, and that's where he wrote the revelation. But all the rest of the apostles died a martyr death. But you know what the word martyr, martus means? It means a witness. And you know what? As we are martyred, it's because we are a witness. You can't be a martyr without being a witness. Amen? And praise the Lord for these men who are faithful. But here's the good news. You know, this goes all the way back to Cain and Abel. There's been religious persecution since the very first family. Why did Cain kill Abel? Religious persecution, right? And it's gone on since then. But what he's saying is, as the time of the Lord draws near, persecution is going to get worse and worse and worse. So when you're persecuted, the Bible says, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you for my name's sake. You should be excited about that. Oh, how happy are you? But also know that it just means that Jesus' return is that much closer. So praise God for persecution. Bring it on. He two encouragements he gives. He says, You will suffer for my name's sake. You know what? What better thing to suffer for than the name of Jesus Christ? Amen? Suffer. He suffered that we might have eternal life. How much more should we be willing to suffer for His name's sake? And also that that suffering will provide an opportunity to become a witness. You know what? I love the, the Old Testament saints. I love the New Testament saints. And man, I love Paul. Because every time Paul got arrested, what did he view it as? Opportunity for the Gospel. They bring him into King Agrippa, and what does he do? He starts witnessing to him. They bring him into every king... Every king person they brought him before he just said hey festus caesar you know what guys you need to get saved they chained him up and when they chained him up he had 12 hour shifts and he said oh divine appointment dude you ain't going nowhere let me tell you something you need jesus right i mean every time he was persecuted he said what an opportunity for me to share the love of god with a lost in a dying world when we're persecuted it's an opportunity to have a testimony to a world that is hurting paul viewed every circumstance as an opportunity for the gospel. 
Verse 14. Therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. Praise God in the midst of persecutions when given opportunities to witness. It is God who speaks through us. How many of you have ever been sharing your faith before and words are coming out of your mouth and you know it's not you? Raise your hand. Haven't you experienced that before? You start sharing your faith in scriptures you haven't read in a while and God's just bringing stuff to your memory and it's coming right out. That's what this verse is talking about. When you're being persecuted, then the Holy Spirit's going to move in a mighty and a powerful way. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you for my name's sake, for so they did the prophets who went before you. What an awesome thing. Not only will the saints be persecuted by the government, but guess what else? They're going to be persecuted by family and friends. Look at verse 16. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends. They will even put some of you to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. You know what? I know many people in this room right now that when you gave your life to Jesus Christ, it caused a huge rift with your family. There were people in your family who said, What is up with you? What are you, stupid? Right? And you know what? You're sharing the love of God with them and they get angry with you. I know some of you, some of your family and parents and and brothers and sisters that don't even want to spend time with you anymore because you're a religious fanatic, man. You're a Jesus freak. What's wrong with you? Well, you don't believe in evolution anymore. Let me think. Lightning hit a puddle and, you know, and a thing crawled out and scratched a freckle and grew an arm flying around. Now it's me. Yeah, no, I don't believe in that. I don't believe in that. I believe in a divine creator who created me in his image. And that sounds crazy to the world, but I want to tell you something. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you. And Jesus said that there would be division between parents and children and brothers and sisters. But you know what? We need to continue to pray for them, continue to love them, continue to share the love of God with them. But remember, above all else, your relationship with God is the number one thing in your life. We experience persecution. And it says here that in the times of the end, that this speaking specifically to the Jews, many will turn them in. Own family members will be like Judas and turn their family members in to be killed because they've given their life to Jesus Christ. But you know what? Nothing greater than to be persecuted for the name that is above all names. Remember, you're not alone. God loves you and He's with you in the midst of the trial. Verse 18, But not a hair of your head shall be lost. You know, God is in control. No matter what happens, God is in control. Nothing can happen to you unless God allows it. And you know what? That's, there's such a peace in that. I remember again being in Russia, and I had about 15 teenagers with me, and they were bombing the White House in Russia. And we were literally looking out our balcony and watching bombs hit the White House. I had a lot of parents really panicked back in the United States. But here's the good news. We got on our knees with those kids and we knew that God had brought us there and we knew that God was in control and we knew that God was going to do a mighty and awesome work and we saw hundreds of teenagers give their life to Jesus Christ. So you know what? Blessed are you. What a privilege it is. And trust and know that God is faithful, that He's in control, and that He's watching over you. Verse 19. But your patience, by your patience, possess your souls. Knowing that God is sovereign, that He's faithful and in control, we can patiently endure the persecutions of life. Remember, false messiahs, wars, famine, pestilence, earthquakes, persecutions, these things have always existed, but they're going to get more and more intense as we get closer to Jesus Christ coming back. And as they get more and more intense, it should just bring a greater intensity in our sharing of our faith, a greater intensity in our prayer lives as we see these signs all around us. 
The next thing that we will see as we go, uh, again, this will happen during, it happened, there was a forerunning of it in AD 70, and there's going to be this happening again during the Great Tribulation, and that's the destruction of Jerusalem. Look at verse 20, 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know the desolation is near. Is Jerusalem surrounded? What do you think? You know, it's amazing to me that Israel is like the size of New Jersey. And it's like the most, biggest focal point in the entire world. Every day on the news, they talk about Israel, don't they? And the Bible has told us very clearly that it is the focal point. And it is all about that. And everybody's always focused on Jerusalem. It's amazing. But you know what? Back in AD 70, they got run over. And Jerusalem did get destroyed. And it was a forerunner of what is going to happen during the Great Tribulation. In AD 70, Titus, again the Roman, came and leveled Jerusalem. And according to the first century historian Josephus, he killed over a million Jews. And he took the remaining away captive, over 100,000 people. Look what it says in verse 21. And let those who are in Judea flee to the mountain. Let those who are in the midst of her depart. And let those who are in the country enter her, not enter her. For these are the days of vengeance that all things will be written, may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. For there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon his people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Isn't this exactly what happened in AD 70? There was no longer an Israel. And Israel was gone as a nation until 1948. Isn't it amazing? There's only been one nation that ceased to exist and then was wiped out, its people were scattered, and then it became a nation again. And the only nation was the nation that God said it would happen in, and that's Israel. How can we not believe the Bible? How can people be so ignorant? Here it is, right in front of us. Here's a prophecy that was 30, 40 years before it happened, and it happened exactly as the Lord said that it would. Now, it will also happen again, another picture of this in the end times, and it's something called the abomination of desolation. How many of you ever heard of that before? Okay, this is during the, the Great Tribulation. In the last days, there's a, uh, the Antichrist will come, and he will make a seven-year covenant with Israel to bring them peace. After the church is raptured, you can imagine what this world is going to be like. Take the church away. You see how, how vile things are now. Imagine taking the Holy Spirit away, taking the church away, and leaving nothing but unbelievers. Imagine the mess. And you know what? With that, there's going to be wars, there's going to be destruction, and along is going to come this guy, the Antichrist. He's going to be charismatic. He's going to be good looking. He's going to, he's going to be really good in being able to, to take and bring people together. And people are going to look at him and say, there's the answer. And for three and a half years, he's going to bring peace. And people are going to look at this guy like, wow, we finally found somebody. But you know what's going to happen after three and a half years? He's going to reveal himself for who he truly is. He's going to set up his image in the temple. He's going to demand that everybody fall down and worship him. And the Jews are going to realize that they've been duped. Followed by three and a half years of judgment upon the earth like nothing we've ever seen before. It's recorded in Revelation 15 through 19. Let me just tell you about the last three and a half years of the tribulation real quick. The first thing that happens, and these are the bold judgments that are listed in Revelation 15 through 19. The first thing that happened is loathsome sores. 
Everybody who takes the mark of the beast will be covered head to toe in sores. The sea will then be turned to blood. Fresh waters will be turned to blood. There will be scorching heat that is so intense that people will begin to gnaw on their tongues out of the intense pain. There will be darkness and increased pain. The Euphrates River will dry up. And then lastly, there will be 120-pound flaming hailstones falling from the sky. Now let me ask you a question. Where do you hide from a 120-pound flaming hailstone? Nowhere, okay? You don't, there's nowhere to hide. And you know what? Heat. No water. Gnawing at your tongues. Covered in sores and extreme darkness. What's that a picture of? It's a picture of hell. And it'll be hell on earth during that last three and a half years. And people have one last opportunity to give their life to the Lord before He comes back and He sets up the millennial kingdom. And you know, when He comes back at the end of that seven years, guess who's riding right behind Him? The first time He came in Jerusalem, He came on a donkey, an animal of peace. Next time He's coming riding a white horse, an animal of judgment. And you know what? He's going to judge those who've rejected Him. And we're coming with Him. And we're going to rule and reign with Him on this earth for a thousand years. And it's going to be awesome. Amen? But you know what? Sadly, this tribulation may, and my heart would be not that it's not so, that maybe some of you are going to face this. Because the only people that won't are those who have given their life to Jesus Christ. Because He's going to come and take His church away. But those who don't know Him will still be here. The second coming of Christ will come at the end. Look at it says in verse 25. And there will be signs in the sun and in the moon and the stars... And on the earth, distress of nations with perplexity and the sea and the waves will roar. Men's hearts failing them from fear and expectation of those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And now, and that's not great glory, it says great glory. Now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws nigh. As we see these signs coming, what should we be doing? Not looking for signs, but looking for the Savior. Amen? You know, as we see that the the famines and the wars and the pestilence and all these things are increasing more and more and more, it should get our eyes off of the world and get our eyes up here. What I used to tell the youth group all the time when I was a youth pastor for all those years is, you know what, if I can get you guys to quit looking from side to side and get you looking up, then I feel like I've done what God's called me to do as your pastor. To get you in love with Jesus and looking for Him and not looking at the things of this world. Let me read to you quickly out of Matthew chapter 24 because it talks about the end times. If you're taking notes, it's Matthew 24 verses 29 to 31. Here's what it says. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of the heaven will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And He will send His angels with great sound of the trumpet, and they will gather together His elect from the four winds from one end of the earth to the other. All light will be extinguished on the earth. There will be no light. You know why? Because the light of the world is going to be coming back. And you know what? In that pitch darkness, that's when Jesus is coming. And you know what? We're going to be with Him. So the details of these future events, you're going to see the rapture of the church. And again, this can occur right now. There's nothing else that needs to happen for the church to be snatched away. That's what a rapture, raptizo means, to be snapped away. The leader of the ten European nations, 
will, will come, the Antichrist, proclaiming seven years of peace. After three and a half years, he'll break his agreement. He moves to Jerusalem. He sets up his image in the temple, the abomination of desolation. The Antichrist he begins to control the world and forces all the people to worship and obey him. The nations gather together at Armageddon to fight the Antichrist in Israel, but when they see Christ coming, they're going to turn and try to fight against him. Jesus' return to earth defeats his enemies, is received by the Jews, and he'll establish his kingdom on earth where we will reign with him for a thousand years. That's what that seven-year tribulation will be like. Almost done here. Verse 29, the parable of the fig tree, talking about Israel's future. Then he spoke to them a parable. said, look at the fig tree and all the trees. And when they are already budding, you see and know for yourselves the summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Surely I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will no means pass away. Fig tree in the Bible is always a picture of Israel. And so we see that it says here, look at the fig tree. When they're already budding, you see and know yourselves that summer is near. The budding that it's speaking about here is May 14, 1948, when Israel became a nation again. And when Israel became a nation again, then the time of summer is now near. Now, it says later there that this generation will not pass away. Now, again, there are many different interpretations of that. Many believe that generation refers to those who saw the land of Israel reborn as a nation will see the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ. Now, if that's true, 1948, people alive in 1948 will be alive when Jesus Christ comes back. I personally believe that that's what it means. Now, I could be wrong, but I believe that's what it means. And so that tells me, guess what? Time is short. Amen? Remember we talked about this on Wednesday night. Six, six days and seventh day. We've talked about that over and over and over again. It talks about the six days and the seventh day, the Sabbath. And it's interesting that the Bible says a thousand years is to a day and a day is to a thousand years. It was 4,000 years from Adam to Jesus and 2,000 years from Jesus till now. That's 6,000 years. And then we are going to have a millennial reign with our Savior, which is that seventh, that Sabbath, that 7,000th year. Well, guess what? That means that Jesus Christ is coming back soon. Now, the Bible says no man knows the day or the hour, and I'm not predicting it. I don't want to be a false prophet, okay? But I believe we need to be looking up. And I believe we need to live every day like He's coming back tomorrow. We've seen the fig tree. It's blooming. Israel's there. We've seen what's going on around us. You know what? It's interesting. As we finish off here, look what it says about the importance of watching. But take heed to yourselves, lest you yourselves be weighed down with carousing and drunkenness, cares of this life, and the day come upon you unexpectedly. In Matthew's account, it says it will be as in the days of Noah. What happened when the flood came in the days of Noah? People were partying and drinking and giving in marriage, and, and Noah's going around, and for 120 years, he's building a boat. Now you imagine, you talk about faith, right? And not only that, but how about having a wooden boat with two termites on it? But you know what? He had incredible faith. And for 120 years, he's building a boat, and it had never rained before. Think about that. It had never rained before. God said, yeah, water's going to fall out of the sky, and you need to build a huge boat. And these are the dimensions. And Noah's out there building that boat. For 120 years, people went by and went, Noah, yeah, what are you building? A bo- What's that? What's a boat? Water's going to fall from the sky. Yeah, right. Right? But for 120 years, he was faithful to God. And in the days of Noah, what did they do? They were partying and carousing and just being married and giving in marriage, but they missed out. And when the rain came, guess what? I guarantee you there were some folks knocking on the door of the ark after it was already closed. It was too late. 
The rain was coming down, and they went, oh, Noah's boat. And they ran over there, and it was too late. And the same is today. Many people are so caught up in the things of this world, they're going to miss out on the fact that our Savior is coming back. It's interesting that Enoch lived in the times of Noah, but he was snatched away before the rains came. Enoch is a picture of the church that is raptured before judgment comes. I love that. What kept the people from listening to Noah's message? The common interests of life, eating, drinking, marrying, and everything else. And while the Lord said that He came, they might give us life and life more abundant, it is a dangerous thing to get so involved and absorbed in the pursuits of life that we forget the fact that Jesus Christ is coming back. You know, we say He's coming, but do we believe it? Do we live like it? Or are we... You know, we're planning for our, our, you know, 80 years from now down the road, and we're planning for the world, and we're so tied up with stuff that we're missing out on the fact that His redemption draws near. For it will come to pass, verse 35, as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the earth. Watch therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that come to pass to stand before the Son of Man. Watch not only for signs, but for the fact that he's coming back. Last two verses. And in the daytime he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and stayed on the mount called Olivet. Then early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. You know what? I believe this is a key to keeping our eyes on heaven. You know what? Start every day with your Savior. Before you do anything else, before your feet hit the ground, put your Bible next to your bed and start your day with him. It says right there that Early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. You know what? I, I feel out of control if I get out and drive off to work having not spent time with my Lord. People think I'm weird, but every morning my first two words are, Yes, Lord. Just like Samuel when the Lord called him, that we would begin our day thinking first and foremost about him. You know, pray without ceasing, for this is the will of God. Start your day with the Lord. Spend your day with the Lord. End your day with the Lord. Keep God on speakerphone all day long. Amen? As you're driving around, just keep talking to Him. Keep letting Him minister to you. You know what? Christianity is not an hour on Sunday morning and an hour on Wednesday night. It's 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Aren't you glad He never leaves you nor forsakes you? And shouldn't you draw near to Him? The worship team will come back up. You guys have a song left for us? You got another one? Do you? Okay, come on up. In conclusion, God has given us His Word to educate us and to equip us, giving us wisdom and direction for our daily lives, revealing the, the events that are before us. Be ready, because false messiahs are coming, you guys. There are going to be people standing up, and the Bible says that many will say, I prophesied in your name, I cast out demons in your name, I healed people in your name, and just say, depart from me, for I know you not. Don't listen to the words of men, but be like the Bereans who study to show themselves approved, a workman who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You're only going to know the counterfeit if you know the real thing. Also, it says that wars and famines and pestilence, the persecution is coming. When you're persecuted, it just means you're blessed. Amen? It just means that God's using you. Don't you know that Satan's resources are limited? So if he's coming after you, it must be because God's using you in a mighty way. So bring it on. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, and I pray that our hearts will be looking up. We look forward to Your return. We can't wait to enter into Your presence. But until then, Lord, I pray we would be faithful to share with a lost and dying world, to not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us to be the men and women of God You've called us to be. Help us to love this world and to love people the way that You do. And Lord, I just pray that there would be nobody in this room that would face that tribulation. Lord, I just pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit that their eyes would be open to their need for you. Lord, not to join a club or a church, but Lord, to have an intimate, personal relationship 
with the creator of the universe. So, Father, we love you. We praise you. And, Lord, even now as we worship you, Lord, may we worship you from the depths of our hearts, just longing for the day when we will worship you forever and ever and ever. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, let's stand up and close the worship song.